reading about this game, like, okay, this is a, you know, one of these horse culture games that you said it was like polo on horseback, except that it happens with a decapitated goat. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's very popular all over Central Asia. Oh, man. The former Soviet republics of Central Asia are not very well known in the West, even though they form a region as large as Europe. What are these countries like today, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Erika Fatland talks about her long journey through the Central Asian republics and the legacy of Soviet influence there. Fatlan is the author of many books and essays, including Sovietistan, a journey through Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. Erika Fatlan, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. So of all of the former Soviet republics, I think there are 14 of them, you decided to write this book about the Central A- the five Central Asian republics. Uh, why did you want to write about them? Oh, that's uh, that's a good question. Well, I've been I've been fascinated with the former Soviet Union and Russia for as long as I can remember. And I must admit, the fascination is quite childish. It's it's about the size. I mean, the Soviet Union was so huge stretching from the Baltics, from Estonia, to to the Pacific Ocean. And one tends to think about the Soviet Union as Russia. Uh, But there were so many different people and cultures that were part of this huge experiment. And one particularly interesting region, I believe, was Central Asia. And it's also, it's a region you hear very, very little about. It's like a white dot on the map. So I was intrigued about those countries. But also, I mean, the book is entitled Sovietistan. Uh, So kind of the question that I posed myself was, what what came out of those countries after being mm. part of the Soviet Union for, for 70 years? How had this experience shaped those countries that before they became part of the Soviet Union, um, they were not really modern states. They, they had no country borders. They had no school system. They were nomads and so on. So the culture was so very, very different uh, from the Russian culture and from the Soviet culture that they were just thrown into. One of the things that I found r- really interesting was you were talking about how how large these countries are, and yet simultaneously how how very little they are discussed in the broader world. You were saying that for Kazakhstan, for example, people usually know of Kazakhstan through the um, the character Borat. Yeah, it's, it's a fact that they are not very happy about in Kazakhstan, I believe. I think even that movie is forbidden in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is the ninth biggest country in the world, and it's a country we hardly ever hear about. So these countries are enormous. And the other thing that I found interesting was um, you say that, that people are always talking about the Soviet Union, no matter where you travel, with this sense of nostalgia. And 
I was wondering how you saw this play out. What did people like so much about the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, and you would not meet the same nostalgia everywhere in the former Soviet Union. Sudden, certainly you, you will meet it in Russia and in Central Asia, but you would not meet it in the Caucasus and the Baltic countries, for instance. But I, I believe that the reason why you meet it in Central Asia so frequently is that um, life was rather good in Central Asia at the end of the Soviet Union, mm. not to begin with, certainly not to begin with. I mean, I mean Kazakhstan suffered through a famine where uh, one-fourth of the ethnic population died in the 1930s. So they certainly suffered a lot to begin with. But uh, in the 1970s, 1980s, life was okay in Central Asia and there was no independence movement. So the independence happened rather to the surprise of the leaders of those countries. And then, and then there's also the psychological point where the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991. That is now quite a long time ago. And most people tend to be nostalgic about their youth. Yeah. And it was interesting to me the degree to which people would would frame things like being remembering how cheap flights were or that you could go on vacations for free if you were a worker and you were tired or there were nurseries and schooling and, and things like that. I was also interested in the fact that you write about how much Central Asia has been shaped by outside empires. People have come through the Mongols and the Persians and the Romans, but that none of them have been shaped by any empire as much as they have by the Soviet Union. Why, why is that? Well, as I said, to begin with, um, these countries were not really modern states um, before they became part of the Soviet Union. They had become part of the Russian Empire earlier in the um, 18th and 19th century, but they, they just had to pay taxes to Russia. It was more like a colonial state. And then in the 1920s, the Soviet Union was born and suddenly everything changed also in Central Asia. So these countries were thrown into modernity in a very, very rapid speed. In just two decades, everything changed. The nomads, for instance, um, in, in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, most of the population had been nomads. Now they were made or forced to settle down in these, uh, what do you say in English, collective farms? Yeah. Yeah. So they were forced to settle in collective farms and live in houses. They had never lived in houses before. They had never lived in one place. So just imagine how their lives changed, changed profoundly. Also for the good, to some extent, the the children, also the girls, were made to go to school. Mm. Uh, today, almost everyone in Central Asia know how to to read and write. Uh, but it's very, I mean, the, so much of what you see today in Central Asia comes from the Soviet Union. So it's almost difficult to underestimate the influence of Soviet Union. I mean, even the country borders that you see today, they were made in the 1920s and 1930s. Mm. You begin your trek in Turkmenistan, a poor country that's over 70% desert. And it, it's a world of very strange contrasts. Could you describe your experience of being in the 
capital city? Yeah, I think Turkmenistan is probably the strangest country I have ever visited. And it's, it's, one tend to call it the North Korea of Central Asia, but I'd, I'd say it's even stranger than North Korea. And nothing can really prepare you for the capital city, Ashgabat, because you just said that Turkmenistan is a poor country. And yes, that is true. The people living there, most of them are very poor, but the country is also rich. They have oil and gas. And you see that when you arrive in Ashgabat, um, it's it's not a very well-known capital city, but if you read Guinness World of Records, you will find Ashgabat many times because, for instance, it's the city in the world with most marble per square oh, meter. Wow. So it's a marble city. It's like the Las Vegas of the desert. And they have these enormous roads with no cars. It's a very, very strange place. It's difficult to describe. I would advise you to go there. Yeah, and strangest of all is the story of the president of uh, Turkmenistan, President Turkmenbashi, who makes Kim Jong-il almost look like Angela Merkel. <laughs> Can you talk about him? Absolutely. I love talking about him. He's, he's a very fascinating character. He's a character you could not make up. So I'm, I'm very blessed to be writing nonfiction. <laughs> Well, what happened in Turkmenistan was that no one, and especially not Turkmenbashi, which was then called um, Saparmurat Niyaza, which is his name, uh, he was the leader of the Turkmen Communist Party, general secretary. And then suddenly he was the leader of an independent country. And he then made some very pragmatic changes. He changed the name of the Communist Party to the Democratic Party. And then he changed his own title from general secretary to president. And voila, there you have Turkmenistan, an independent country. But now, uh, interestingly, no one in Moscow uh, was controlling him anymore. So now suddenly he was free to do whatever he wished to do. And he had been raised in the political culture of the Soviet Union. So he was familiar with the cult of personality of Stalin and so oh. on. So he now perfected that and he got crazier and crazier. So the first thing he did was erecting lots of golden statues of himself everywhere. Then he changed his name to Turkmenbashi, which means a leader of all Turkmen. Then after a few years, he found that not enough. So he added Bayik, which means the great, Turkmenbashi the great. Um, then he had decided that in 2000, the year 2000, uh, Turkmenistan would enter the golden era and then everything would change. So um, what he did change was the name of the months and the days and naming one month after himself, another month after his mother. He wrote a book, Ruhnama, the book of the soul that he forced everyone to read. Uh, from first graders to university students. And even if you wanted to have a driving license, you had to pass uh, an exam in this book. My God. And so he's quite a character. <laughs> you head out into the Karakum Desert, which covers so much of Turkmenistan, and you visited a, a family with two daughters. I was really taken with this story. There are these daughters, and one of them is carrying... I think her name is Olgunar, and she's carrying a notebook and 
this family is almost illiterate, and yet this young woman writes poetry in her book every day. And yeah, I found it a very captivating story. I don't know if you had anything you that you uh, wanted to say about that. Uh, it was a very touching uh, moment to meet Ogulnar. I met her, they lived in a yurt, a tent in the desert. They were nomads. They had nothing. Well, they went to the village school, but really they had no books, nothing. And yet this girl, she was the poet of the village. And I mean, I don't even know where she had learned what poetry was, but there she was writing poetry. Uh, she would sometimes leave the animals or the cooking or whatever she was doing, run into the tent to write some poetry if she was inspired. So it's such a beautiful meeting. And it, that is always what stays with me when I return from these journeys. It's not the mad precedents of, of the countries. And it's not the beautiful or fascinating landscapes. It's, it's always the people that I mm. meet. I think the reason why I was uh, moved by that story was I've had experiences also traveling, particularly traveling to Central Africa, where I met people who had very little in the way of formal training or had very few opportunities, and yet you could see that they had fantastic capacity for more, and just makes me reflect upon you know how much human potential is there that's probably not being realized somehow. Oh, there's so much of it, and, and it makes you sad if you start thinking about it. And then there is also the hospitality. I mean, Central Asia is famous for its hospitality. And, and I was invited to weddings literally every week. Mm. I get so tired of weddings. Um, but it's also very moving. And I think the most hospitable people I met in this very, very hospitable region were the poor nomads of Turkmenistan. They had nothing, and yet they gave you everything mm. they had. So before we leave Turkmenistan, you have to talk about National Horse Day. Okay. That is also a story that you could not invent. Um, Central Asia is famous for its horses. Um, people love horses. And in Turkmenistan, they have a special breed, Turkmen horse, uh, that they're very proud of. So every uh, last weekend of April, they have National Horse Day. And then, of course, the president participates. Now they have a new president because Turkmen Bashi, he died in mm. 2006, I'd say, to his own surprise. <laughs> and then he was followed by his dentist. So that's an interesting career. Um, Gurbanguli Berdi Mohamedov, who now calls himself Arkadag, the protector. So you understand how, uh, what he has become. And he was participating in National Horse Day, and so was uh, half of Ashgabat. They had been bused to the uh, stadium in the early, early morning to um, be there to watch this. Not voluntarily. It's probably not how they wanted to spend their weekend. Well, you said it takes place over the course of like an entire day. Oh, yeah. It's mostly waiting. And then we were waiting and waiting and waiting, and, and some... Horses came and appeared, and then everyone arose, and I understood, okay, the president must be coming. They seem to know when he's coming. And then he came, and he was participating then in the first race. And I think the first prize, I don't remember correctly, I think it was 10 or $11 million. So it's quite a lot of money you could win. 
And then it all started, finally, this first race. It was not very long, maybe 400 meters. And you could literally see how the other riders were holding back their horses so that the president could win as he did. It's only that when he crossed the finishing line, he made some movement in the saddle and the horse lost its balance. So the president flew over the horse and landed in the sand and was just lying there, not moving. No one else was moving either. Or the other riders just barely managed not to um, step on the president. And it's very difficult to, to describe, but just imagine the silence, the shock. No one knew if the dictator was alive or dead. And, and the uh, bodyguards of the president, of whom there were many, they were also just standing there, absolutely not knowing what to do. And then after a very long time, this old-fashioned Soviet ambulance came oh. driving onto the stadium. And then they just you know, um, carried the president into the, this ambulance and off he went. And for the next hour or so, no one knew if Turkmenistan had a president or not. But then he came back. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually so fascinated with that story. I had to look it up on YouTube. You mentioned that somebody surreptitiously filmed it, and it is there. And uh, it's exactly as you describe it. Yeah, it is. And the crowds actually, after a momentary shock, everybody is just silent. Yeah, just look up on YouTube, uh, Turkmen president falling of horse. It's hilarious. <laughs> so the next journey you take is from Turkmenistan to Kazakhstan which is really synonymous for these big Soviet projects. Certainly on this uh, podcast, uh, we talk a lot about space and the Soviet space program was centered in Kazakhstan, but also the Gulag system, the situation with the Aral Sea. And it seems so much that Kazakhstan has become a kind of symbol of environmental catastrophe. What struck you most about your experience there? Um, well, Kazakhstan is so big, as I said, it's the ninth biggest country on earth, uh, but there are very, very few pe people living there relatively. I think it's about 17, 18 million people and even less, of course, during the Soviet Union. Um, so this was perfect for all the experiments uh, of the Soviet politicians. So for one, they had a huge nuclear test site in Kurchatov, just north of Semipalatinsk in the east of uh, Kazakhstan, where they tested most of their nuclear bombs. Mm. And I visited this test site, and today it's just a very deserted, strange place, very radioactive. Uh, and what was also fascinating, I met some very old Kazakh men there who had worked at the test site during the Soviet Union, and of course, not really knowing the risk involved and I talked with them and even they even these old men they were so nostalgic about the Soviet past and they said yeah. oh the Soviet Union was such a beautiful period so um I wanted to ask you some questions about uh, we, we can't actually cover all of the the amazing places you went but I I thought it was really interesting when you went to Kyrgyzstan you talked about how open the country is politically even though it's very poor and yet there are these social practices which are pretty terrible, such as bride stealing. What What's involved with that? Okay, so um, Central Asia is generally 
a region that is not a very democratic region. Uh, all the countries are uh, authoritarian to uh, different degrees. Um, but Kyrgyzstan, after having um, had two revolutions where the people protested against the president and had him run away from the presidential palace, uh, they now have a quite well-functioning democratic system mm. in Kyrgyzstan. So it's, of all the countries in Central Asia, it's the freest and most democratic country. But for the women, it's probably the most unfree country. And they have this tradition called alakachu, which means uh, snatch and run. So it's bride kidnapping. And that it is forbidden, but it's widely practiced. And I believe it's even more practiced now than during the Soviet Union. And I had heard about this practice before coming to Kyrgyzstan. And then I just assumed that, well, this is something that journalists find exotic and want to write about. And then I started asking the women and men that I met in the countryside if they had any experiences with this practice. And everyone I met, every woman I met had been kidnapped. God. And it's certainly, it's not a romantic practice. It's uh, it's literally rape. Uh, for instance, I met a girl who had been living with her sister in the capital, Bishkek, um, working there, uh, enjoying her life. And then one day a van stopped in front of her and there were some men, young men that she hardly recognized, but they were from her village and they were drinking and partying and they just dragged her inside the car and started driving towards the village. God. And she was crying uh, and they they didn't care because, well, that's normal that the girl is crying when she's kidnapped, but eventually she stops crying. And then she was taken to the village where... Uh, the wedding party had already started. Oh my God. The guests were already there. So the only person who didn't know that she was getting married that day was, was the bride. And then it's considered very shameful to not accept getting married uh, because, uh, well, you have to be a, a virgin and so on. And if you don't accept, there could be a doubt. So more than almost everyone accepts. And then the wedding night is practically a rape. Oh. So I want to spend some time talking about a new book that's coming out. Well, it's it's actually out already in Europe, but coming out in English this year is your book called The Border, in which you circle all of the bordering countries of the Soviet Union. I think there are 14 of them. Yeah. And in particular, I was fascinated with the time that you spent in North Korea and uh, the capital Pyongyang. What made the biggest impression on you? Well, I guess actually before we start with that, um, what was your motivation for for expanding your focus to this much broader geographical region? Um, it all started with a dream. One night I was dreaming that I was walking on a large map um, and I was walking from one country to the next. But to the north of this red line uh, was Russia. It was just always the same country, not changing, Russia. So then Mm. when I woke up, I had the next book all planned. 
to travel around Russia. Uh, what does it mean to be the neighboring country of the biggest country in the world? And of course, I assumed that this book already existed. So the first thing I did was to go to Amazon to check uh, how many books like this already existed. And to my surprise, there was none. Uh, but then when I started traveling, and it took me almost 300 days uh, to travel around Russia, then I understood why this book did not exist. And it's also fascinating for me being a Norwegian uh, that between Norway and North Korea, there is only one country. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. That, that, is, that is actually fascinating to think about it that way. So you spent time in North Korea, which is very, very difficult to visit. And the stories from that chapter are remarkable. What made the biggest impression on you while you were there? Uh, that's a good question. Well, I was there for more than two weeks and I chose a trip where I could see more of the country than just Pyongyang. Of course, my goal was to visit North, North Korea, where the border to Russia is. And I think visiting this very remote and poor and little visited North, North Korea um, made a huge impression of me because then you see how, I think you see more of real life than in Pyongyang. Mm. Pyongyang mm -hmm. is what they show to the world. Pyongyang is where the rich people live, where the lucky people live, whereas the less lucky, the unlucky people, they would live in cities in North, North Korea. And it's just very gray very poor and and you still have for instance in, in in the streets you still have loudspeakers with propaganda yeah. uh, where some woman is talking something uh, for hours every day and and also what was just strange was uh, to be disconnected totally disconnected with the world because you can bring your mobile phone to north korea but it will not work so so you have no contact with the rest of the world. So we, we visited the border also with um, South Korea. And that day, sort of border house, where one can normally enter to see the border itself, it was closed. And I asked the guide, so why is it closed today? And she said, well, I have no idea. Maybe the South Koreans are angry again. <laughs> and I was wondering what is happening. <laughs> uh, so... It seems to me that people who report a lot on former Soviet republics and that world um, often kind of rely upon the trope of um, the ruins, the, the former greatness of the empire. And your writing isn't like that. I mean, you certainly do talk about Soviet architecture and, and the communist world and the ghosts of the past, but uh, so much of your writing is actually about people you definitely have an eye for the absurd. Um, as a writer, how do you avoid falling into these patterns? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, it's all in the research, I think. It's, it's all what happens during the journey. And you cannot, you can plan some of the encounters, but you can't really plan everything that happens. So you just have to allow ample of time and try your best to meet people that you believe will be interesting. And there yeah. are many of them. 
you're um it seems to me that so much you do have a you do have guides on parts of these journeys but oftentimes when you travel it appears as if you're traveling alone and especially when you're traveling through the central asian republics these are very patriarchal countries was it difficult traveling as a woman journalist by yourself I get that question a lot and I understand why you ask, but well, there were some situations that were a little uncomfortable, but I did not um, encounter any dangerous situations except Mm. for sitting in a car, which is really dangerous in those countries. But most people are very hospitable. And I think uh, me being a woman traveling by myself actually made uh, the people I met being protective towards me. And also, I think it can be a huge advantage being a woman because then you can also talk to the women, which male journalists often cannot. Now, for instance, I'm writing a book about the Himalayas and I was traveling a lot in in Pakistan, in very conservative Muslim areas of Pakistan. And there, my guide, who was a man, uh, he was not allowed to enter houses or even villages where I was allowed Mm. to go since I was a woman. So you pose a question in your book, um, Sovietistan, and to quote from it, you write, why do we travel? Why do we put ourselves through all the discomfort that moving across great distances and staying in faraway foreign lands usually entails? So what's your answer to that question? Well, it is a good question, Um, if I must say so. Well, I I also remember the rest of that paragraph, and I think I conclude that we travel because of our bad memories, that we don't remember very well the suffering that we encounter while traveling or the discomfort, Uh, because as we travel, it is indeed very uncomfortable, but then when you come back home to your uh, nice apartment with all the comforts mm. of modern life, all, all of this discomfort becomes abstract. It's just a good story that is fun to tell and somehow it vanishes. And, but I also think it's, for my part, it's also, I think, becoming an addiction. So, yeah, you uh, you do answer the, the question in the book and... Um... You have a beautiful line here, which I'm just going to read. You say, memory is not linear. It is more like a diagram full of points, high points, and the rest is empty. Memory is also abstract. Seen from the future, past discomfort seems almost unreal, like a dream. And I wonder sometimes whether that's true for all people or whether it's true for people who end up falling in love with travel. I don't know. It's just a question because that's the way I I remember it too. Do you ever, I mean, you travel so much and you write extensively and prolifically. Do you ever lose yourself in the moment of travel or are you always seeing it as a writer? Uh, What do you mean by that question? I guess what I mean is that, um, well, to use myself as an example, oftentimes when I'm traveling through a place, uh, the point at which something fantastic occurs almost 
instantly in my head is how can I write about it? Or, um, you know, how can I somehow put this down? And I get mad at myself actually for, because it pulls me out of the experience and into the, the curating of the experience for somebody else. Um, I actually find it the opposite. I find it a huge comfort that I'm going to write about this and not the, not the beautiful moments mm. um, of which there are a few, but of the terrible moments of which there are many more. Um, for instance, you told me you were interested in Soviet space stories. So when I was doing research for the border, I visited Baikonur uh, from where Gagarin mm. was shot into space. And I had planned this for so long because you have to plan it for a very long time to, to, to be able to go there to get the permits and so on. And so I came after 40, 50 hours on the train. I was there finally by Kodor. And it was a total disaster. The first thing that happened was that my guide locked me into a dirty apartment. <laughs> and then at least I was thinking, oh this is a disaster, but it will be a fun chapter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Erica Fatlan, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website, podcast links, and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.